Q&A with Bishop Julian Porteous. Hello dear friends and welcome to another episode of Question and Answer with Bishop Julian Porteous. And I have with me Jovina Graham. Hello. And myself, Jeremy Ambrose. And we have uh, a very interesting question for you today, Bishop Julian. Uh, we've heard that um, there's been some parishes that have been advertising workshops on Enneagrams. What exactly is an Enneagram, Bishop? Yes, yeah, so that's... Um it's something that's been around, um, particularly started to uh, become more popular probably in the, the 70s and 80s particularly. And uh, uh, it's still obviously still around, still people are involved in it. Uh, it it's, it's a rather curious um, thing, this Enneagram. The Enneagram, uh, its symbol actually is a, is a nine-pointed symbol. Um, those who um, promote the Enneagram basically explain it as a way of identifying uh, your personality in terms of one or other of nine different types. So they see it as a process whereby somebody can identify the nature of their personality and, and they'll say, I'm type one, I'm type four, I'm type six, and so on. Now, this it's a, it's a curious thing because um, the Enneagram uh, is claimed to have origins connected with uh, the Sufi um, tradition. Now, Sufis are a, uh, uh, it's like a mystical offshoot of Islam. And, uh, and they, the, the promoters of the Enneagram claim that there's links. Now, the first thing I'd like to say is that the, the Sufi tradition it per se has not developed or promoted the Enneagram. But they do, the, the, the promoters of it do claim that it reflects Sufi tradition. Now, Sufi tradition is just worth looking at for a moment because the, the Sufis have a basic notion that reality is in terms of a design. There is a fundamental design for, for life. And so um, when you're a Sufi, you actually want to go into to discover this design for life and then cooperate with it. Like, now, basically, what this, this, we would call this a Gnostic approach to things. And, and the Sufi, Sufi tradition and teaching it has many Gnostic elements to it. Gnosticism is the idea that there is a secret knowledge. There is a, there is a, um, a reality that uh, only those who are the initiates will be able to discover and enter into. And so you, you enter into this, for Sufis, this mysticism that leads you to discover the inner design uh, to life and then you cooperate with it. And you can see how, in, in a way, the Enneagram has taken this concept to say that let's discover the inner design for each of your personalities, sort of thing. So you discover who you actually are, if you like, in interiorly. So that's how there is a connection between the Enneagram and, and, and Sufi uh, belief. However, I have to say that, as I, as I mentioned, the, the Enneagram wasn't actually developed 
by the Sufis. It was developed by um, a fellow called Gurdjieff, who was uh, actually, he was Armenian, and uh, he was an occultist, basically. He, he was very interested in the occult. Lived in Russia in the, um, the latter part of the 19th century. And he died, uh, I think, about 1949, uh, but lived a lot of his time in, in Russia. Uh, and he was the one who, if you like, took Sufi ideas and then created this idea of these nine personality points. Uh, however, one of his... Um, um, one of his students continued to promote it, and ultimately there was a fellow in Chile, a fellow called Oscar Icazo, who um, who began the popularization of the Enneagram in the 1960s. So, so he had taken these original ideas and then began to put it forward as a pseudo-psychological tool. And it became, uh, just partly because of the times, I think the 60s, everybody was open to all sorts of new ideas and um, and particularly there's a lot of interest in psychology and, and a lot of focus on pop psychology. So how can we uh, improve ourselves, improve our personality, improve our, our, uh, uh, our gifts and qualities at a psychological level? So there's a, there's a, there was a lot of curiosity about the psychological realm and it was in that environment that this uh, idea of the Enneagram got a bit of currency in the West and initially in America, in the United States, but then it flowed across the world. Now, uh, it was at that time at the church when uh, there was uh, a lot of um, a lot of turbulence, a lot of seeking of new ways. It was a period after the Second Vatican Council where people were wanting to be open to the world and look at new ideas. And, and so one of the things they absorbed was this notion of the Enneagram. So the Enneagram became quite... Um, quite popular, um, many, um, particularly nuns, many religious priests started um, getting involved in the Enneagram and started, uh, and then they would come out and say, I'm a type seven, you know, and that's like, good, that's who I am, and, and then start to formulate their, their life in accordance with this particular personality type that they've identified. It began to be taught in, um, in, in retreat centres and uh, all sorts of spirituality centers and, and uh, numbers of religious um, really became practitioners of this and teachers of it and promoters of it and, and so on. So it, it became quite a considerable presence in, in the church. I suppose the question we have to ask, and I'm sure you're going to ask it from, <laughs> of me, is, is it of value? And that's obviously the question we have to ask. Now, it's, it's not something that has received formal teaching by the church. You may be aware that, that there was in a document released by the Vatican in 2003 entitled Jesus Christ, Bearer of the Water of Life. It was, it was a, an investigative document looking at the emergence of a lot of New Age cultish practices. And it mentions Enneagram, as one of these. So it falls into the category of New Age and the occult. And uh, this document didn't come out formally opposing, but just really talked about the way these uh, these ideas, or the nature of these ideas, but it eventually spoke about the fact that the true water of life is, is Jesus himself, so the Christian faith. Uh, however, it, it has remained um, something that, that is being 
utilised in Catholic circles, and as you've discovered recently, it's it's been uh, promoted here in in Sydney. Yeah, well, that's my question for you, Bishop. Can can Catholics really engage in this? I would I would start off by saying very simply no. I don't think you should. <laughs> but I might go on and explain why. There's as I said, there's not there's not not definitive teaching on it by the church. So I I would just make some general comments. The the first there are a couple of places where you can go for some further information as to a Catholic uh, response to the enneagram. One is a, a man whose work I appreciate is uh, Father Mitch Pacwa. Now, Father Mitch is interesting because he was actually a practitioner of the Enneagram for a number of years he? because he was a spiritual director mm. and he um, and he was probably a, a child of his age in the sense that this was something that was around and so he started to to utilize it but after a while he started to see the dangers of it mm-hmm. and and then he uh, he wrote a uh, a book ultimately in which he very clearly I think he devoted about three chapters to to actually speaking about the dangers of the Enneagram. The New South, the, the, New South, the, the, the United States bishops um, uh, invoked a uh, study and, and carried out a study on Enneagram, and there was a document produced. It wasn't published, formally published, but I have um, I'm aware of the document. And basically, in this document, it speaks about the dangers associated with it, partly because it's Gnostic, partly because it um, draws on some of the notions of, um, of the Sufi religion. And, uh, and so it's the, the, this document has come out against the use of it and has, has counseled that it should, should not be used in Catholic institutions, nor should religious be promoting it uh, at all. Um, one uh, bishop, the Archbishop of Miami, wrote an article uh, I think in the light of the bishop's exploration of it, in 2011, he spoke about, he, his topic was uh, New Age is Old Gnosticism, and he addressed the, the Enneagram in that article. In the article, for instance, he said that the Enneagram is a pseudo-psychological exercise supposedly based on Eastern mysticism, which introduces ambiguity into the doctrine and life of the Catholic faith and therefore cannot be happily used to promote growth in authentic Christian spirituality. And that's basically the position I too would adopt, that it's pseudo-psychological. I don't think, uh, even from a point of view of psychology, I don't think it has any scientific uh, grounding to, to, to verify its accuracy. Uh, I, I think it is, um, it is really a pseudo-psychological exercise and the dangers of it are associated more particularly with the fact that uh, it draws on spiritual concepts which are alien to, to Christianity. I think one of the big issues with it, very simply, is that the Enneagram fosters a certain self-absorption and actually narrows down our freedom as individuals. In other words, you, you tend to say, well, I'm a type 7, and so somehow you lock yourself into that um, that self-perception. And I think one of the dangers there is you, you, you tend to dismiss other things mm-hmm. in your personality because say, well, that's not who I am. I, and I don't think that's healthy for growth and, and development. So my general advice would be that you should not be firstly promoting it in Catholic parishes. 
among Catholics. I, I don't think Catholic institutions should in any way uh, host this um, Enneagram programs. And I always say that for Catholics, we have a rich treasure house of spiritual teaching uh, in our own tradition. We don't need to go anywhere else. And that's where we'll get the pure water to drink from our own tradition. Mm. Well, thank you, Bishop Julian. I'll, I'll definitely be avoiding any of those workshops. Jamina, we now have an opportunity for um, a look at a little aspect of Catholic life. One of the things I'm sure we've all been aware of uh, in recent years is a, a rediscovery, reappreciation, and, and a real desire to participate in adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. Mm. Uh, this has been one of the, I think, one of the great graces in the Church at the present moment, which we're thank, very thankful to God for. But it probably does provide us with an opportunity of, of just looking at the principal instrument which we use for um, adoration of the Blessed Sacrament, that is the monstrance. Mm. So the monstrances we know today tend to have a very quite specific shape to them. They tend to be circular. They tend often to have the sense of uh, the sun, if you like, the rays going forth. Uh, so it highlights the Blessed Sacrament, if you like, as a source of grace as, or as a source of light. You know, So, so um, we're very familiar with the monstrance as such. But the question I'd like to propose to you today, where do monstrances come from? Why are they the shape they are? So I thought I might talk about that today. Well, I don't have an answer for you, but I'm pretty sure as a child I was sure that monstrance came from monster. So I'd like some clarification. <laughs> on that. Well, maybe we should start by where, where does the word monstrance come from? Because it, it, it may sound an unusual word for us. The word monstrance comes from the Latin word monstrare, which means to show. So... The monstrance is the, is the instrument by which we show forth uh, the Blessed Sacrament. You might find there's another word that is sometimes used. That's the ostensorium. That's mm. the, the other word sometimes you might hear, but most of us will use the word monstrance to describe uh, what it is. Interestingly enough, the, the monstrance really emerged as, as an instrument for adoration really in the 13th century, However, there was another use of, of something to show forth that was in the church for many centuries before, and that was the instrument to show forth relics. And, and so the monstrance had its origins not directly connected with the Blessed Sacrament, but actually connected with relics. And you may find, certainly in older churches and uh, cathedrals, You'll probably, particularly if you go to Europe, if you go to the treasury, sometimes you can go to the, the treasury of a cathedral is where it stores and it often puts on display a lot of the ancient liturgical items that it's used and they're often very interesting to look at. And you'll probably find there a number of monstrances which were just simply used to, to hold a relic, a bone of a saint or something. These monstrances, also called reliquies, weren't round, they tended to be more square-shaped, but often ornate with little um, towers on them or little spires and so forth. So the shape was more an elongated shape into which the relic was, was placed, and they were then 
taken out of like at the time of the the feast of the saint they'd be taken out for the people to venerate the relic and so the original source of the monstrance is connected with relics but then when uh, in the 13th century when we saw the emergence of devotion of the blessed sacrament by means of public processions and adoration and so forth then uh, it was to place a circular host in it and it was more natural for there to be a circular shape mm. to the monstrance. And often it does take the shape of a, um, of a sun with the beams of the sun shining forth as a sign of, of giving a focus on the, the Eucharist as a source of grace, a source of light for us. Uh, that's where it has emerged from. And today you can get smaller ones, of course, in different designs, but basically they're circular and... Uh, the whole idea is, is one of, of drawing people's attention to the, the real presence of Christ in the Blessed Sacrament and encouraging the act of, of worship. And, and of course, the, the one thing particularly that monstrance is used for is for benediction. And the word benediction, of course, just comes from the Latin bendicare, which means to bless. So when we talk about benediction, we're coming for the blessing, if you like. And when you have a Eucharistic procession or you have adoration of the Blessed Sacrament, it normally concludes with a blessing, the benediction. Well, some things we know, some things we don't know. Now we know all of them. Thank you very much, Bishop Julian. Thank you. You've been listening to Q&A with Bishop Julian Porteus. For more episodes, visit radio.org.